The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Happy birthday. I know it's uh, a few days off, but I wanted to give you your present early. It's a Cardassian Holosuite program, an adaptation of one of Shogoth's Enigma tales. Is it? I see. Well, you sound disappointed. I thought you enjoyed uh, mystery novels. I do. Human mystery novels. The trouble with Cardassian Enigma tales is that they all end the same way. All the suspects are always guilty. Yes, but the challenge is determining exactly who is guilty of what. Morning, London. It is Thursday, July the 19th. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show. This is uh, the Thursday edition of Feedback, called Just Right, and you can call in on the show on 519-661-3600 if you have any comments on our subjects today. Today we'll be talking about, again, a little bit about global warming, this time using economics instead of politics to deal with the issue. How is that being looked at? A little bit about Michael Moore and the healthcare system and sicko and insurance crisis in the United States. And later on in the show, Marijuana, Canadians, and the law. Uh, it seems that a lot of people in Canada are, are token up these days. But first, uh, do something I don't often do on the show, uh, is, is stick into a little bit of municipal politics. All suspects are guilty, but who's guilty of what? Did you see that uh, headline in the free press a week ago today? Um... City Hall Training to Fight Abuse, London Free Press, July 12th, by Joe Belanger at the Free Press. And i got to tell you, this has got to be one of the weirdest things I've ever heard of coming out of City Hall. Uh, you know, who's guilty of what? It almost assumes that there's something really bad going on down there, and that, that that's the only question that's forced into my consciousness when I read about our municipal leaders and employees having to resort to such outrageous measures to prevent abuse at City Hall. Like, what's wrong with this picture? Quote, quote, Every London city employee, from garbage collectors to top bosses, will take special training as the city continues to deal with the fallout of a 1999 employee torture case. Torture. An employee torture case. Like seven years ago, eight years ago, and now they've come out with a huge spending program with your money, on behalf of all the city, st city hall staff, estimated to cost a half a million dollar over, f over four years, just amazing, $500,000. The training will be divided into two parts, one about respect at work and the other about responding to woman abuse, family violence, and sexual violence with additional topics to be added in future years. Each of the city's 2,300 full-time staff will be taking part in the program called Standing Together, Employees Caring for Employees. And that brings to a great question. Is this stuff that's going on at work, or is the city now going to get into the personal lives of its employees? 
Um, Jeff Fielding, the chief, the city's chief administrator officer, is being praised for this initiative. Uh, the champion we were looking for, says Megan Walker, of course, uh, executive director of the London Abused Women's Center, especially since she's getting her issue pushed into the city hall agenda. Um, and, of course, uh, Kate Wiggins, executive director of Women's Community House and chairperson of the coordinating committee, said, I think we're all waking up to the fact woman abuse is not an individual issue, but one where we all have a role to play in offering support and ending abuse and violence against women. And now think about this for a minute. This is, does this sound like right to you? Why do we need to spend even one cent on this? Couldn't, like, the basics of civilized behavior be covered in the normal employee orientation package, you know? Or dealt with when you hire somebody? For example, you could put at the top of the employee package, uh, do not torture anyone, not even your fellow employees. Wouldn't that be kind of a clear message? What do we have to spend a half a million dollars on? What kind of people are we hiring if we have to spend a half a million dollars to train them in this way? Um... It's just an outrageous way of doing it. I looked at the cost. Okay, you've got half a million dollars, 2,300 staff. That works out to uh, over a, well, a four-year period. Actually, I worked it out. It's so <laughs> in a year, it'll be about, oh, $50 per year per employee. And I still have to ask. That may, might not sound like a lot when you're looking at it on an individual basis. But if their behavior is really as bad as suggested by this weird story... Why should taxpayers be forced to pay a single dime for it? Why don't we just fire the offending individuals? Wouldn't that send kind of a clear signal that such behaviors are not tolerated? You can't torture your fellow employee. You can't uh, treat them in a uncivilized way. Um, you know, rehabilitation while you're on taxpayer-funded salaries is pretty pretty much jo job security run amok, wouldn't you say? And here they are talking about abuse and training, you know, about abuse and here we are, the taxpayers being abused routinely with spending like this. Um, what are they going to introduce into these courses in the future? They sound like they haven't even got the program yet, and they're all already planning to expand it. But then again, what can you expect from City Hall? Oh, boy, I tell you, I look at a headline like that, and it just makes you scratch your head, and you wonder what is going on down there. Where is all this garbage coming from? And speaking of garbage been a lot of talk about that at City Hall as well. Again, uh, another, uh, shall we say, environmental myth is being used to promote yet more uh, green agendas, shall we call, call, call it. Uh, I was reading the free press, and actually it doesn't happen too often, but a letter to the editor caught my eye, and it was July 11th by writer Suzanne Bowles, who the headline read of the letter, Trash Talk Wears, on at least one resident. Well, you can count two in there, Suzanne, because I'm another one. I don't even have to deal with most of this stuff because I live in an apartment building, and we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. It's taken care of by the people who run the buildings. But uh, I, I have to tend to agree with her in her article where she says, um, and I'm quoting her here in the free press, in the article City Committee weighs new trash limits from July 9th, I feel like Londoners are once again being given a slap on the wrist. Rather than looking for alternative ways to reduce and recycle or adding new recyclables to the current list, the city continues to blame and add new restrictions on its residents. Yes, we need to divert more from our landfill and to take into consideration the strain on city workers. But every time the city implements Learn a new hosting. initiative... Londoners are blamed 
for further or given further restrictions. This is not a way to find a win-win situation for everyone, she says. And I certainly agree. And once again, to his credit, Councillor Paul Van Meerbergen has spoken with reason on this issue. In complete contrast, I think, to the uh, thinking displayed by uh, Steve Transparent Orser and the rest of them, uh, Van Meerbergen notes that we've had garbage collection in the city for years and years, and the weight problem did not arise until a four-bag limit was imposed on Londoners. And he says using hard and fast bylaws is not the way to go, uh, says Van Meerbergen, who favors instead improved services in the recycling end of garbage pickup and in the garbage pickup itself. I think the letter writer, again, Suzanne Bowles, illustrates partially his point here. In her letter, she, she pointed, pointed out, and this might happen to some of you in your, uh, when you're you know, putting your garbage out for collection. Quote, she says, This week our garbage was not picked up for 11 days because of the city's initiative to save money with a sliding pickup schedule. With cat litter changed once a week, plus non-recyclables and a family barbecue, we had reached our four-container limit. Normally, I spread the weight around, but all the, ba- all the bags were heavy. Even though I carefully rinse out anything that contains meat products, the hot weather made it easy for a generation of maggots to grow on the outsides of the bags. We were forced to double bag because I wouldn't subject city workers to the little white worms, end quote. Now, here we have a, an extremely conscientious citizen you know, finding it difficult to comply with some city restrictions. It's certainly in that case where you have a two-week uh, wait and you've got some garbage that happened to build up in those two weeks. So imagine what non-responsible citizens are, are going to do. What of those who are less than responsible? But, you know, even in her, in her argument, which I mostly agree with, there's one bad or, or, or false, I think, assumption in there. And she says that uh, we need to spend less or send, sorry, not spend, send less waste to the landfills. And I think this is largely a myth. Sure, you, every, it's always in everyone's interest to recycle. I've been doing recycling before the word ever came out. I even recycle post-it notes, for heaven's sakes. I, I've got these little square post-it notes on my videotapes and stuff, and before I throw that thing out, even though it's two inches square, it's been written on like 500 times, and I can't read the writing anymore, and that's when it's gone, or it just simply won't stick anymore. So I even recycle those. I recycle envelopes. It's, it's, it's just a way of saving money, and it's in everyone's interest. But if it became more expensive to recycle than to not, uh, that's when people start not doing it anymore. Um, Van Meerbergen again correctly observes that garbage collection is a core service. It's an essential one, for heaven's sakes. That's one of the ones that they justify even collecting municipal taxes on your property in the first place. And, of course, it's paid through municipal taxes, and they keep rising, and the, and the services keep precipitously declining. And uh, when government starts imposing these kinds of negative regulations, says Van Meerbergen, you get these negative side effects. And, of course, that's sort of true of all government regulations of that nature. Um, It's interesting, I heard uh, Jay Stanford, uh, manager of environmental services with the city on on another radio show the other day, and he supports, of course, the new weight limits and all the restrictions, and uh, on the basis, he's got a couple of reasons, both which I think are bad, on the one that other cities have already done it, well, I don't know. My mother always used to tell me, if your friends jump over the cliff, should you jump over the cliff too? Uh, apparently, our city administrators think that's exactly what they should do, is jump over the cliff with the rest of them. But what's even more revealing is his statement, 
quote, it is all about a f finding that appropriate balance, quote, with other social priorities to meet the needs of the majority. My goodness, Karl Marx, move on over. You know, it, it reminds me of the day when I first started doing accounting for a large corporation here in the city of London, and I had to pay a huge business bill, business tax bill to the city of London, and I was feeling very, uh, shall we say, uh, guilty about it and very uh, anxious about it because I'd never seen such a big bill, and I couldn't justify what it was for. It was in the tens of thousands of dollars because I was working for a large company. So I called the city up one day, and it was amazing what they told me. I said, what's this business tax for us? We've already paid our realty tax. We've paid these other taxes. What's this one for? And I was told bluntly, and I remember it to this day, business taxes are a penalty for doing business in this city. So there you have it. You know, it's all, you can keep paying taxes, and taxes, they're not for the services you receive. They're basically for city services as they wish to provide them, and if they don't provide you with what you need, you are on your own. That's enough for municipal politics for now. When we come back after this break, we will be talking about global warming and using economics instead of politics. See you after this. On to myth number two. We're drowning in garbage, our own household garbage. You believe that? You worried that we're running out of places to put it? We do produce a lot of it. Americans discard more trash than any other country in the world. There's no place left to put all the garbage. That's what we've been told. Do you worry that we'll run out of places to put the trash? Yes. 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 But this too is a myth. One that analysts say was jump-started by this barge. It's cargo nobody wants. These 3,000 tons of compacted trash and garbage on a barge on the Mississippi River. The barge was filled with New York trash being shipped to a landfill in Louisiana. But on the way, the shipper tried to save money by dumping his trash in North Carolina. Suspicious local officials said, no thanks, and that got so much publicity that by the time the barge reached its original destination, the Louisiana dump wouldn't accept it anymore. That brought more publicity. The garbage is just sitting there while its owners look for a place to dump it. Interviews with the tugboat captain suggested a national crisis. The greatest country on earth, and we can't straighten out a little thing like this. What, what's going to happen if we ever get in trouble? Mom, Dad, we need to start recycling because we save our planet. Nothing gets thrown, nothing gets thrown away. Recycle your trash! The publicity over the barge ignited 10 years of activism. We are now approaching an emergency situation. But it wasn't true. We're not drowning in garbage. We can't. The EPA says while some cities have to ship garbage out, overall landfill capacity is actually increasing. All around America, people are building bigger landfills. Some landfill owners compete for our trash. Some of our members are, are actually looking for ways to be disposed of. Some put parks and golf courses on top of it. In the United States, there's plenty of land to properly dispose of our solid waste for thousands of years. We hardly have a garbage crisis. Listen, this sounded legit to me, so I thought I'd best do some research. I don't want to piss away on this one until I know what's up. I've got kids. Now, there's a lot of differing data, but as far as I can gather, the crux of it is over the last hundred years, the temperature of this planet has gone up 1.8 degrees. A am I the only one who finds that amazingly stable? 
You know, I'm always amazed as per chaos theory, I don't wake up one morning and it's 3,000 degrees and I'm just a big Kingsford briquette in a pair of jammies. 1.8? Are you kidding me? I could go back to my hotel room tonight and futz with the thermostat for the next three or four hours. I could not detect that difference. You know, I'm kind of glad it went up. I'm always a little chilly anyway. But environmentalists, they don't want to hear it. They get really cranky. They'll give you that uh, guilt card. Well, what about your kids? Of course I love my kids. I hope they live to be a hundred. It's another 1.8. <laughs> and they give you, what about your kids' kids? Three six. I, uh, yeah, I'll just tell them we moved to Phoenix or something. <laughs> then they get really crazy on you. Well, what about your kids, 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 kids? You know, I'm never going to meet them. I'd like to tell you they matter, but they don't. I assume I had relatives thousands of years ago could care less about me. Well, should I leave the cave today and use a blunt instrument to kill a mastodon and procure some meat, or should I get ready for Dennis's arrival in the mid-1900s? <laughs> Wilma, what time's this flight getting in, honey? Welcome back to the show. This is Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where you can call in to join the show at 519-661-3600. That was uh, Dennis Miller, of course, talking a little bit about his take on global warming, one of the more uh, politically active comedians out there, and uh, certainly a little bit on the right. A lot of stuff he says that I don't agree with, but he gets a lot of those issues, just nails them on the head. Um, for this period, I, was, I discovered, I was going through the free press last week, and there was a series of three articles all appearing on the same page on London Free Press, July 12th. Uh, one was the editorial by Paul Burton, and the other was the uh, point-counterpoint, and it was called uh, Carbon Conundrum. And amazingly enough, it was a debate between Elizabeth May and Tom Harris. Tom Harris, you might recall, was a guest on my show here back on May 17th. And if you saw that uh, clip in the paper last week, not a clip, it was a full full page uh, debate. And I certainly couldn't cover everything they said, but I've sort of zeroed in on what I thought were the pertinent points that each writer made. And I have a couple of comments to illustrate to you why I get so frustrated when I read the newspapers. For example, Elizabeth May, here's her basic argument down to the key four or five sentences from her essay. She says, quote, the Green Party is advocating a tax shift. Significant cuts in income taxes, enhanced income supports for low Canadian, for, for low income Canadians and seniors, and cuts in both employer and employee contributions to CPP and EI all covered through the application of a $50 per ton carbon tax. Economists and experts agree that a carbon tax is the single most effective way to deliver a consistent signal to the economy, says May. And she says the argument for a carbon tax is clear. We need to have consistent, coherent pricing signals. Well, let's look at that argument for a second. First of all, economists and experts agree. Well, Economists and experts never agree on policy. They may agree on some fundamental economic principles, but never when it comes to government policy. And 
the belief that you can interfere with the economy politically and then call it non-political is what's driving most of this kind of thinking. But consider the implications of the green plan. Okay, so we get rid of all of our other taxes and we put on a $50 per ton carbon tax and with that they're going to pay for everything, okay? So what does that mean? That means your health care is dependent upon that carbon coming out of those smokestacks because <laughs> the minute they cut back, the $50 per ton money will not be there to cover the expenses that they're expecting to pay with that money. It's like, uh, and it's not even a measure to cut back per se. It's a measure to, if you don't cut back, you pay us a penalty and we take the money and do what we want with it. But you can carry on polluting all you want, even by our standards. I don't even think it's pollution because CO2 is not pollution in that sense. But uh, it's just, you know, and then they don't even think of the unintended consequences. You know, we need to have consistent, coherent pricing signals. Well, that's not even wrong. You know how they say something's so wrong, it's not even wrong. You're not even on the right page. Of course, Tom Harris, who uh, takes the other point of view and argues more on the science end of things, okay? And he says carbon taxation is simply a method of artificially increasing the price of fossil fuels. Although water vapor is by far the most significant greenhouse gas, it is C CO2 reductions that are focused on under the Kyoto Protocol and the government's turning the corner action plan. Carbon dioxide is a natural byproduct of all combustion, no matter how clean. CO2 is an essential ingredient in plant photosynthesis, without which there would be no life on Earth. The bottom line is that as if we as a society are forced to pay artificially higher costs of energy and cut energy use enough to meet Kyoto-style targets, we'd have a smaller, economy, a smaller economy and lower incomes, period. There is no free lunch. Debating the best ways to enable CO2 reduction, etc., is moot. Bad policy, even if carried out efficiently, is still bad policy. I think Tom's being a little too kind to some of his opponents, too, because we use certain words without implying what's really going on. For example, when you say you are artificially increasing the price of fossil fuels, that word artificial is a substitute for the, worse, for the words force, where you're going to use the force of law to create a situation where you aren't going to pay the price that the person selling the price actually wants, you're going to pay a higher price. And artificial in this context means government intervention in the economy. Which brings me to uh, Paul Burton's um, editorial on the same page, not related directly to the debate, but certainly indirectly. And Paul writes, quote, it's simply too easy to own and operate a vehicle. Most Canadians, for example, commute alone to work in a private car or truck. That's far too many, though it doesn't give us a number, given that the transportation sector makes up roughly 24% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions and nearly 54% of these emissions are due to passenger transportation. So if 24% of Canada's greenhouse emissions are caused by the, quote, transportation sector, and 54% of those are due to passenger transportation. That means we're really talking about 12 to 13% of actual traffic that's, that's, you know, contributing to anything. And I don't know why he would say it's simply too easy to own and operate a vehicle. I don't know who says. I know a lot of people for whom it's out of reach. Even just the insurance costs alone are keeping it out of their reach. But here's what... Uh, Paul Burton argues, he says, the solution is presenting itself without government intervention. 
It's called Prices and Traffic, both which are doing more to influence motorists than concern for the planet. Well, our gas prices are high because the government hasn't allowed new production for years and years now, so it's not without government intervention, you see. All of this stuff is government intervention. When, when someone's saying that using economics to influence human behavior it may not be good politics, but it's usually good policy. It is politics. Don't fool yourself. Economics in a free economy means free from the government intervention. That is government determining your prices and the terms of your your relationships. It's not doesn't mean free from law, order, fraud, and things like that. But there you go. You know, one of the reasons that uh, I often get so frustrated reading the papers because I see two sides arguing sometimes a moot point. We'll be back after this and we'll be talking about Michael Moore and Sicko, a little bit about the health care debate. I was listening to NPR some years ago, <laughs> late in my office, and, and the people were in a tizzy. It was a little story about the people in tizzy. They were worried about the extinction of the elephant. They were worried about the extinction of the whale. They were worried about the extinction of bald eagles. Yeah, matter of fact, you know, I was 35 years old before I saw my first bald eagle, and I was looking at the critter in the cage. <laughs> and I was asking myself, could I have gone another 35 years without saying that? <laughs> and I said, yeah, but different people have different values, so I don't have any problem with it. <laughs> and people were forming Ducks Unlimited Club, and uh, uh, the story about uh, Save the Whale Clubs. And so I wrote down another list of animals that are very, very valuable to us. And I was saying, how come people are not in a tizzy over the chicken? How come they're not forming cow clubs? How come they're not going to Congress saying, save the pig? Well, what's the difference between this list of animals that are very valuable to us and nobody's in a tizzy over and this list where people are just going crazy. Well, it's very simple. In this list of animals, cows, pigs, and sheep, they belong to somebody. Somebody's personal wealth is at stake. The other list of animals, they belong to the people. Nobody's personal wealth is at stake. So if you care about various animals, you ought to try to privatize them. strikes me is, is uh, uh, the movie brought something interesting, which is I think this country sort of takes care of the indigent and the rich. The real problem are the people that are doing well enough that they don't qualify for uh, government programs that, can, that really help them, but not so well that they can't afford $60,000 for a ring finger. Right. Uh, the film is really about uh, the middle class who actually has insurance and thinks that they're covered and, you know, they like to brag to their friends, you know, yeah, I got a job with benefits and and then when they finally have something tragic happen to them, uh, they find out that the insurance won't cover them, and uh, they're ending up, they end up stuck with a big bill. And it's now the number one cause of bankruptcy in the country, medical bills. Welcome back to Just Right here on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call 519-661-3600 if you want to join in the discussion. 
I'm Bob Metz, and the person you just heard now was Michael Moore speaking to John Stewart. And that was a very interesting question that Mr. Stewart raised about the private health insurance issue in the States, which is, I think, a little bit different from advocating socialized medicine. And I think, believe it or not, in, in raising that issue, I think Michael Moore has actually uh, done a good thing because that's an issue. Private health insurance, although you've heard me advocate it as an option, I don't mean, mean to advocate it as the only option or as an option that can solve every ill that you may have because that's simply not the way insurance works. But, of course, uh, the show, Mike, Michael Moore was here in town uh, in London um, debuting his show, you know, where, where he was. And, and I remember the night, uh, the week after he debuted here in London, I quoted something he said uh, on a radio interview, and sure enough, he said the same thing in the National Post. He says, if anyone thinks that his movie Sicko is about health care, quote, they are sorely mistaken. Health care is just the vehicle I'm using to talk about these larger issues. I don't know if you saw the uh, the National Post's coverage of Michael Moore's movie. It was in the movie section, entertainment, and they had a full page, uh, front page there, of a prescription bottle. Just that sitting by itself on a page. And on the prescription bottle or container, a pill container kind of a thing, uh, it had the uh, little tag with the prescription on it, and it, and it read, read as follows. It says, uh, patient colon, goers, comma, movie, directions, take 123 minutes with a grain of salt, indications, will invigorate health care debate, possible side effects, doubt. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. Interesting enough, even the, the right has not criticized Michael Moore's movie Sicko as much as they did some of his previous movies. And because, he, of course, he's touched on some issues that can connect with everyone. Um, it's funny, the National Post uh, had another article by David Gratzer, G-R-A-T-Z-E-R, on July 6th, 07, in which he uh, talks about lawyer Avril Allen, who says she's too busy to watch Michael Moore's sicko because she's actually preparing to file a suit against Ontario's provincial government about, the he about its health care system next month. So I imagine we're going to be hearing a little bit about that. She's representing a patient with a malignant brain tumor who would have had to wait four months just to get an MRI and then months more to see a neurologist here in Canada. So her client has already received the necessary treatment in Buffalo. Of course, in 2005, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that access to wait lists does not mean access to health care, striking down many of uh, key Quebec laws that prohibited private medicine and private health insurance in that province. In the United States, Democrats are calling for single-payer health care, which, of course, is what Michael Moore is campaigning for, among his other issues. Um, I think that's a little bit like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Uh, the, the article even points out, without, without my going into all the detail, it illustrates how almost every other country that has gone that way, gone the whole socialist experiment, is now heading in the exact opposite direction at a time when Michael Moore is advocating the states go uh, you know, upstream this time. But I think the crux of the problem is advocating a single payer health care system. That's like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. A large part of his movie talks about people trying to uh, 
you know, get a health or get a private insurance claim processed properly. Now, you see, I think that the government should be the referee in a situation like that. It should be looking at the contract. It should be looking at what uh, the insurance company has actually offered as a service and what has actually happened to the patient. When you ask the government to also be the insurance company, don't expect impartiality in a court when that insurance company called the government does the very same thing that the private insurance companies do. They decide who gets what treatment, what kind of things are covered, what things are not covered, how anybody thinks that is any different from the private insurance on that side of the equation. I, there, there is no difference. What is different is how it's paid for, and that's through the taxpayer and only the taxpayer. And I think that's a tremendous injustice for a number of reasons. Again, I think the proper thing is to allow all options, to allow uh, private health insurance properly administered by government. Remember, government does a lot of things to insurance companies that make it impossible for them to cover proper claims. Insurance is supposed to be like a last resort for really serious things that happen in your life. Like if you've got uh, cancer, heart disease that really could cost a lot in a short period of time, that's the kind of thing people envisage that insurance is really all about. But what we do with our health care system is we want to have a free system. No, no paying at all, not even for that $20 doctor's visit or checkup or, or the simple cold you have or anything like that. It's just... We're one of the only places in the world, one of the few. Of course, well, you know this already, don't you? North Korea and Cuba are the only other two places on the face of the planet other than Ontario that ban private provision of health care. And again, private provision of health care means that you can be privatized, that you can pay directly or you can pay through insurance. The doctors are already private. Don't fool yourself about that. They're not, quote, state paid, and they're free to go where they want, although there are people already talking about limiting that as well. But certainly there is a problem with private insurance. I know that myself. I've made claims through private insurance companies up here in Canada, and you, you're going to get a hassle. It's their job, in a way, to protect the money of the people who pay the premiums to them, because you want to know that the insurance company that you are paying premiums to will have the money there if you are indeed in a very serious situation. And you don't want to see that money going out for bad reasons or for reasons that people could afford for themselves. And, and think of the fraud situations that uh, insurance companies have to deal with on an ongoing basis. It's just tremendous. Um, people will try to claim anything, get through with anything. They have misunderstandings. And the idea that everything should be free without any upfront money for the user is just something that's got to go. And this brings me to my next little point here with regards to this. Uh, I, I see another disaster coming on the horizon here in Ontario should Howard Hampton get his way. Heard him the other day. He wants to introduce now a socialized dental plan for the province. And this has been done in other countries, and I think England went through the experience once, and people with uh, toothaches often had to go fly over to France to find a dentist. It's the same situation. You know, I've got... People who know me know I've had bad teeth since I was a kid, and I've always paid my dentist direct. I don't even use private insurance. If I get a root canal, 1000 bucks. I know exactly what it costs, and I pay right over the counter. You know what? I can walk into my dentist's office, and if I have to wait more than 5 or 10 minutes, it's a, that's unbelievable. Usually I just walk in the door and sit right down, and I'm in and out of there with almost any ailment, uh, dental-wise, within 20 minutes to half an hour. That's how... Now, 
I can just see what would happen should Howard Hampton get his ideal here. All of a sudden, everybody can get free dental care. I'll show up at my dentist one morning with a real bad toothache, and the place is packed with people in there who aren't paying their own way, but have gotten me also to pay for them, even though I am paying my own way, and I will have to wait in line. And that's exactly what happens. You just can't uh, give people, quote, something for nothing. It's never for nothing, and just because the taxpayer pays for it doesn't mean you've justified, uh, you know, claiming that service for yourself. It will, uh, here's the funny thing too, Howard Hampton says, uh, oh, it's going to pay for itself. Yeah, this free health care system or dental care system, it'll pay for itself because you understand it's always through those imaginary future savings. If you put money into it today, you'll save all these millions and millions tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's what they tell us in every field, don't they, where the government runs it. It's the same in uh, even in energy, you know. If you save all this energy now and you cut back on your electricity consumption, you will save all kinds of money in the future. Nonsense. Look at your look at your London Hydro bill sometime. You could get, you could get it down to zero consumption and you'll still have to pay the debt on Ontario Hydro. You still have to pay your administrative fee. Uh, the bill we get at the office has a $45 a month fee just for administration. I, I could turn off the power for the whole month and still have to pay them that $45. I look at our regular usage that we use, uh, you know, at our office, and if we use about 19 to $25 worth of electricity a month, it's, it, that's huge consumption. But the bill that we pay is close to 100 bucks. You're looking at 80 to $100. And that's how the taxes will be. That's how anything that the government funds just ends up. There's no avoiding it. If there's no resistance in the system, people working for their money, putting effort in, no competition, you're not going to get the results you want. It just, uh, I, you show me an example of where it works the other way, and I will certainly publicize it for everyone, but I haven't seen one yet. On the other side of this break, we will be talking about marijuana, Canadians, and the law. Some interesting stats and follow-ups. We'll see you soon. Nice to be back in Montreal. Home sweet home. Yeah. Every time I come back, though, I, I forget that I don't speak French. Yeah. You'd think I'd remember. You know, I know enough to get by. Like, I know we, oui, non, well, because I vote. have the best hope. Uh, no, I don't do that anymore. I don't think it's necessary. Right. Just testing. Never touch it myself. Not me, nope. Welcome back to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join in the conversation at 519-661-3600. Marijuana and the law in Canada has been an issue for decades now interesting article in the National Post and a number of other papers talking about Canada's pot use is four times the global rate. A very alarming statistic. Maybe we can blame that alone on Mark Emery, the king of pot, who happens to live in this country. According to the July 10th National Post, Juliet O'Neill, quote, marijuana use in Canada is highest in the industrialized world and more than four times the global rate according to a United Nations report. 
The study even suggests Canadians use marijuana at a rate double that of the Netherlands, where, interestingly enough, it is legal to buy and sell the drug for personal use. Now, it's interesting, just looking at some of the statistics here, about 160 million people use marijuana worldwide, which represents 3.8% of the world's population aged 15 to 64. Now, that's of the people who actually admit to using it, you know, like in that clip we just heard, uh, no, I never touched the stuff, not me, you know, because it's not the kind of thing you want to admit in a culture where it may be considered a negative aspect or, or, or be illegal for some reason. That's why I think so many of the statistics we get with, that relate to marijuana and drug use and other uh, contraband is not really that accurate, and uh, nor could it be, because you can only get information based on other sources that aren't really that, that clear and objective. But, what, but of what they do have here from the United Nations, I found these stats rather interesting. Canadians uh, are up at 16.8% of the population say that they've uh, smoked marijuana, and that means in the past year, I understand. So that doesn't mean ever, so it would be a lot higher if it was ever. England and Wales, surprisingly, lower at 8.7. United States is right behind us at 12.6%, which is interesting since they have some of the toughest marijuana laws and drug laws on the face of the planet, even though many individual states have decriminalized marijuana, which is interesting. Why would they even be interested in deporting someone like Mark Emery from Canada to the U.S. when their own states have so many states where they just don't treat it as a serious issue? But there's a, a huge problem there, which I'll get to in a moment. Meanwhile, uh, Israel's down at 8.5%, uh, which surprised me that it would be that high in an area like that. Jamaica, only 10.7%. Get that, Jamaica, 10.7%. Canada, 16.8%. You'd think it would be the other way around, wouldn't you? And Netherlands, where the drug is legal, 6.1%. That's the lowest on the scale, which might tell us a little something about drug prohibition and drug laws. Interestingly, the more totalitarian a country is, uh, of course, cannabis use is almost negligible in East and Southeast Asia, Korea, Singapore, and in the Middle East. Like, uh, no surprise there, eh? Uh, food, is all, food use is almost negligible in some of those countries, so it's not surprising they can't get other things. Cannabis is the largest illicit drug on the planet, which is truly amazing. Uh, nothing new about that. It has been the case as long as I ever remember being in politics. Whenever we looked at, uh, I remember the Fraser Institute used to put out reports fairly regularly, and they talked about illicit uh, trafficking in the past. And generally, cannabis traffic, or the industry as such, always showed up at number one or two in the in the gross national product, if they could have included it as a legal uh, commodity within the within the economy. And that, of course, is what some people want to do. And here's where I have to part ways a little bit with some of these suggestions. I, th I think they're maybe well-intentioned, but I think you can get into a lot of problem with, for example, the suggestion of B.C. Liberal Senator Larry Campbell in Vancouver, who, uh, where did I get this from? Free Press, July 12th. Uh, Decriminalize pot and tax, quote, the hell out of it, end quote, says the paper. And he says, uh, that's Senator Larry Campbell, says the federal government should decriminalize marijuana, tax the hell out of it, with the revenue going to public services such as health care. This is not a drug that causes criminality, he said. Well, it does cause criminality if it 
if its use itself is considered criminal. <laughs> That's where it causes criminality. And it's so fascinating when I see so many shows on television, even in cartoons, where they warn kids against smoking pot and the dangers of pot. You know what the biggest danger is? You could get caught by a police officer. That's the situation. Now, I don't think you're improving the situation from going from illegal to taxing the hell out of it, because if that's what you're doing, you're still keeping it on an illegal market and people don't want to pay it. I think the reason pot hasn't been legalized till now is because it's almost non-controllable. How do you control a weed? It's not called a weed for nothing. You don't have to put it in a hothouse. You don't have to process it separately. You can drop a plant on your front garden. It'll grow. You can put it in a pot in your window. It will grow. And you can get the same grade stuff that they might want to be selling in, in, in the government-run stores, which, interestingly enough, if you've been following the news, the government-grown marijuana, which they have been doing for medical purposes and other reasons, uh, and interestingly enough, they get their supplies from Mark Emery, uh, which was I thought was funny. He's the guy that sells them the pots, even <laughs> for the government's plan. And now they're planning to deport them. But uh, apparently, this stuff that uh, the, the way they're doing it, they're doing it underground in these caves. Yeah, it's a good place to grow pot. Uh, the quality of the stuff is just not good. It's certainly not for the patients that have been using it. And of course, if you're paying attention to south of the border, the uh, issue has uh, blown up a bit because. At the moment that Al Gore Sr. was doing his uh, his concert in Australia for the uh, for you know the whole green thing, his son Al Gore the third was back in the states and was busted for pot and assorted prescription pills. And uh, it's funny uh, the writer of this article, Kathleen Parker in Washington, in the National Post, uh, quote drug prohibition's latest victim. Uh, she said, you know, pot smokers might revolt if they weren't so mellow. <laughs> and that maybe is one of the reasons we put up with these laws, you know. Twelve states have decriminalized marijuana, which is interesting. I thought it was a little more. Maybe it's that number is something that goes up and down. Uh, I remember reading a few years ago uh, in the Playboy Forum section, had an, a fascinating article, that in all the states that decriminalized marijuana, the stats for arrests and convictions went up dramatically because police were less reluctant to uh, lay a charge against someone knowing that they would only be found you know guilty of a fine which would which would you know just be dismissed in a hurry instead of all these draconian jail sentences and ridiculous issues where you know any police officer of of good intention wouldn't want to do that to anybody i'm reminded of the of the case of that poor fellow in california who is, I don't know what's happened since since this happened, if he's been able to appeal, but he got 20 years in jail uh, for growing marijuana in California. It was a federal case. I remember CNN covered it a while, a couple of years ago. And this guy was actually working for the California government, but the jurors in the federal case were denied that knowledge. So here they are, putting a guy to jail for 20 years for growing pot who was working for the government in another state. And I'm thinking, holy cow, how unjust can a justice system be? I think drug laws are possibly, you know, the most anti-un-American thing that's going on in America today. They're filling their jails with people on drug charges. There are so many more practical ways to handle the drug issue. I think, uh, you know, you've heard it before, criminals love 
or, or sorry, more more to the point, drug dealers love drug laws and prohibition. They just love them. They're the, probably the biggest supporters. They're the ones that make the money. They don't have to pay taxes. You can take a weed that is virtually worthless if it weren't prohibited, because it grew everywhere. It grew all over southern Ontario before prohibition in the 30s. It was a staple of every farm. They called it hemp back then. And it, it wasn't always psychoactive, but there were very many uh, versions around. And, of course, once you prohibit it, the value of it goes up dramatically, especially if there is a, uh, a demand for it. I think it's. I think it would be easier, believe it or not, to decriminalize and legalize hard drugs and something like marijuana because they're harder, to, they're easier to control within a sort of a legal parameters. And the people who are dealing with things like heroin and very strong drugs are dealing with addictions, which do not make them necessarily the crazy people that you always hear about in the papers. Um, I remember Britain ran an experiment, 60 Minutes covered it, where. Uh, heroin users who are addicts. Remember, addict means dependent. Just like you're an addict to food, if you want to talk about it like that. If somebody cut off your food supply, you might start getting a little bit violent, and you might want to do something about getting that supply back. But as long as you get the supply, you're a perfectly normal person. And that's what unfortunately happens to so many poor souls who are hooked on drugs. They're not taking the drug to get high anymore. They're taking the drug to stay normal. This, of course, does not apply to marijuana. Marijuana is off that scale entirely. And I think the most uh, rational approach is something you know promoted by uh, Milton Friedman, and it was put in front of the United States Congress some time ago, and that's just to treat it like you would uh, basically alcohol and uh, tobacco and things like that, and not overly tax it, but just tax it at the normal rate that you would be taxing everything else. And I think that when you deal with people who are in trouble because of drugs, then you have a good reason to do something about that person's drug habit. Other than that, you really can't do much about it. You know, I've, and that, I think that applies to alcohol too. I think we have, uh, you know, we're very tolerant of usage, and we tend to let perpetrators of very serious crimes under the influence of these drugs get away with things that they shouldn't get away with, using the drug as an excuse, of course. There was a time when being drunk and killing someone driving, that would, that would get you off almost any time. So that's that on the drug situation. Our show's just about out of time. There was so much more to tell you about that. could get into the whole history of, of drugs and drug prohibition and certainly will do that in the near future. But for now, we are out of time this week, and I just want to make sure that you'll be joining us again next week on the show. So until then, we'll continue our journey in the right direction. See you next week. Till then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. We on the air yet? Oh, hello, y'all. Uh, good morning, or whatever, or day. <laughs> Today was out of sight, out of sight. Temperature today ranged from about 56 to where you are to 450. Woo! That's where I am. 6 to where you are to 450. Woo! That's where I am.